This is The Law School Show. Discovering the person behind the resume. Bringing you their stories and their tips on how to succeed in your legal career. Catch it all here, right now, on The Law School Show. Hello there, Amos Vang here. This is part two of my conversation with Roy Gupta. Before you listen to part two, I highly recommend that you listen to part one to familiarize yourself with Roy's background. In part two, Roy and I discuss his publication in the book Designing a Sustainable Financial System, Development Goals, and Socio-Ecological Responsibility. Specifically, Roy talks about the importance of improving the global financial system and domestic legal systems to being more efficient, practical, and reflective of local communities' needs, especially in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. Without further delay, this is part two of my conversation with Roy Sengupta. One other issue that has come up more so than in the past is the issue of sustainability in the legal system. And not just the legal system, but also in the financial system after COVID-19. Even before COVID-19, we've had this discussion on a much larger scale. But in your case, you wrote a, a whole chapter on this mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the 2018 book that I mentioned mm-hmm. earlier, earlier in the podcast. In your book, you wrote about the incorporation of environmental, social, and governance factors, or ESGs. Mm-hmm. into the current financial system. Just to briefly summarize for our audience, why are ESGs important for making the current financial system more sustainable? You know, I, I think it's, it's in large part because our research suggested, you know, traditional research has suggested increasingly that the markets have blind spots. And, uh, and really... I think we're seeing now with the interesting behavior of the market during this coronavirus pandemic, which is mystifying some. But I think that, you know, I think now a lot of people are questioning, like, what is the blind spot of this market, basically? Are they, are they missing something here? Uh, but certainly, you know, what we were saying is, is with environmental, social, and governance factors. You know, it, it, these are factors that really, when you talk about, uh, let's take the context of the pandemic, for instance. You know, the markets previously were not pricing in resilience of businesses. So you may have had investments in businesses that were unsustainable, that had poor environmental records, poor social records, poor governance records. Those are precisely the kinds of businesses and investments that are at risk now. And, you know, it, it really is a situation whereby ESG is about foresight. It's about forethought. And it, it's about the idea that by having that foresight and forethought, you can weather crises like coronavirus because uh, coronavirus is far from the only crisis, particularly when you're investing in developing countries, but also in developed countries. You, if you have a, 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 a project which is strong on environmental factors, environmentally sustainable is not causing damage to the environment, and everyone has projects like that, then you have less of these types of disasters. And you have less problems, which then impact all the profitability of all projects. If you have strong social mechanisms, you attract, well, less attention from a government, for instance, which may attempt to impose, and we're seeing that now, a government which may attempt to impose regulations, nationalizations, what have you, because you're not 
handling the labor rights correctly. You're not handling the, uh, you know, the, the social obligations, the stakeholder rights correctly. Uh, think in Canada of indigenous communities and, and you know, the, 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 the issues that they've had with, with the oil and gas and mining sectors. You know, there are projects that have come into play that have negotiated with indigenous communities that have, it's far fewer than we'd like, but that have negotiated with indigenous communities that have worked with them. And to the extent they do that, to the extent they get buy-in from the beginning of the process by indigenous communities and contribute to their development, they can get those projects approved. They can move those projects forward and have long-term profitability. You know, not a situation whereby you're having some kind of confrontation every 10 years because people just hate your project. You know, you're, you're anticipating that. Governance factors is, is to prevent things like corruption, you know, prevent things like an investigation happening. Uh, you know, again, things that can disrupt your project, environmental disaster, social protests, poor governance, which leads to loss of money. And, and so we sort of were saying that, you know, at the end of the day, those projects are long-term more profitable than projects which just have a short-term speed. They may not make as much money immediately because you're having to make investments in, in those factors, but you can be far more assured that over time, those projects are the ones that will stand the test of time. I think coronavirus now is really leading people to think a lot about this stuff, I think. And I, I think, you know, this is a moment, I think, certainly for sustainable investment for ESG and what have you. Because I think people are saying it's like we don't want to be caught off guard again with the next crisis. And in order to do that, in order to not be caught off guard again, I've got to have more foresight, particularly in the markets, particularly in terms of the investments we're making, in order to ensure that you know these crises can be withstood. And it's certainly a good thing that ESGs are now becoming more relevant much more relevant now in the COVID-19 era mm -hmm. where everyone is now forced to look at everything involved in a system, in especially the financial system. And everyone is now forced to say, what can we improve in the system? If we don't improve it, people are going to lose their jobs, they're going to lose mm -hmm. their, their, mm -hmm. their businesses. Whole mm -hmm. swaths are going to be lose, losing their businesses, in fact. Mm -hmm. And not only that, GDP is going to go straight down mm -hmm. as it already has in many countries, including Canada and the U S. Mm -hmm. So it's such an important thing to keep in mind. And you also wrote on page 94 about the issue of bounded rationality, mm -hmm. right? And, and bounded rationality is quote, the constraint that often prevents human beings from attaining full rationality due to a limited capacity to learn and remember information about the market end quote. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's basically saying that most people have a limited ability or limited interest or attention span to really how the markets are. Right. If you were to look at the news right now and you just look at, looked at the stock markets on a mm -hmm. typical weekday, 8 a.m. Right. or 9 a.m. to 4.45 p.m., uh, depending mm -hmm. on how, whenever, when the hammer strikes, mm -hmm. when the hammer ends. It's just, you don't even know what you're, you're looking at. Right. hundreds if not thousands right. of companies with their stock right. numbers are just going in and mm -hmm. you're just looking at it and just thinking uh how do i make sense of this uh yes. there's so many of this and some of these companies mm -hmm. i don't I didn't even know that company existed what do they yeah. do right <laughs> exactly yeah and 
if you were to try to explain this to even a person who would, even an undergraduate student, to some undergraduate students even, most of them would probably tune off in a matter of minutes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Let alone if you factored in the ESGs and adding more, potentially mm-hmm. more complexity on top of an already complex system. Yes. Ridden with so many flaws. How do we address this bounded rationality? Mm-hmm. How do mm-hmm. we incorporate ESGs into the financial system mm-hmm. that can be explained concisely mm-hmm. to the general public? Now, that's the million dollar question. That's the question we really were, were working on in those papers. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, it really is about, uh, I, I, I think, certainly a starting point that we sort of were, were discussing was, was this idea of quantifying these metrics. And really, right now, a lot of the problem we have with, with ESG, it's, it's like, well, how do I measure environmental sustainability of, of an investment or a company or what have you? How do I measure the social and governance sustainability of, of a company? And, you know, so what goes into that? Uh, and, you know, there's still debate, there's still discussion as, as to what precise metrics should go into those factors. But I think what we certainly do need as a starting point, but I think that you raise a very important question, which is that there's so much information already in the marketplace. How do we get people to pay attention to this? Uh, but certainly the starting point, in order to get anyone to pay any attention to it, you have to quantify it. That's how the markets operate. Uh, and, and so you have to score companies, you have to score investments on ESG metrics, and you have to come up with an index by which you can do that. And you, you have to then have sub-scores for each category, sub-scores for environmental category, like CO2 emissions, of course, something like broad consensus on, uh, you know, uh, social factors, there's indigenous relations, I, I think there's broad consensus in, in countries with large indigenous population, that that's certainly something that would be factored for, but things like that. And then deciding how do you score it? How does someone get a high score or a low score, basically? What do we want to see from a project or a company that is having good indigenous relations versus a company that is at risk of, from its lack of indigenous relations? Or, or what do we see, you know, with a company that has good CO2 emission standards? What is the industry standard for that? And I think that's a big part of the reason is we have to benchmark against certain industry standards. And I think that, so it's going to be on an industry by industry basis like oil and gas mining, what's the industry standard for doing this? Is this company beating the industry standard or is it short of the industry standard? And so that I think is how you, you would score it. And then so you have those, those indices that are, that are easily accessible to investors when they uh, choose to in, invest in a company or when they choose to invest particularly in a project. And, and that was a, a big emphasis about as well as particular projects, uh, what does a pension fund want to buy into this or that project? In terms of whether they're going to care about it, and, and I think that's sort of what, what, what you're getting at, and that's also a huge question. Uh, you know, that is something that I think, again, is, is going to be a cultural thing. I, I think COVID-19, more people will care about it. The thing is, there were people who cared about it already. Uh, mm-hmm. For 10, 20 years, there's been people who cared about this stuff, but who didn't have the access to the information to really say accurately. They try to come up with it themselves, how you know, ESG you know, could be implemented. Uh, but they didn't have a standardized way of doing it. And, and so it means that organizations that have the expertise and the consultation of possible, the technical people, the engineers, the, the scientists, and what have you, basically, building standardized indices that allow, you know, for, for, those, for those calculations to occur. So people who do care about it can use it 
And in terms of getting people to care about it, again, I think that's part of the reason why we wrote the paper, why you should care about these, these issues. Uh, and why, you know, of course, we can't get rid of all the other information market. The other information market tells us important stuff, particularly about financials. But why should you prioritize looking at this before you make an investment, particularly at the very least, even if your entire portfolio is not, you know, sustainable investments. And, and we understand that for some individuals, for some, for some investors, there's going to be a priority on, on sustainable investments and they're willing to have their entire portfolio be sustainable investments. But for many investors, that's not going to be possible because of the objectives of their portfolio or what have you, so to speak. But nonetheless, every investor, I think, should have sustainable investments in their portfolio. And I absolutely would say that because I, I think that if you're talking about a blue chip investment, the only true blue chip investment is sustainable investment. Because you don't really have a true blue chip investment if your investment is at risk of all these factors. And so at the end of the day, every investor, I think, should have long, long range investments in their portfolios. I think your long range investments should be sustainable, even if your short range investments may be more about liquidity or what have you. So and I think certainly even, you think even your short range investments, I mean, both short range investments got, got hit by COVID-19. And, and so I think it's really worth thinking about like how much, you know, you listen to people like Bill Gates or whatever, who could have pandemics every 20 years, who I think have gotten a taste of what climate change is going to look like in terms of disasters that we may face, you know, uh, 50 years. And I, I think we're getting a taste right now of what the future world is going to look like. Because this is, I would say, far from the last kind of disaster we're going to have in this regard. And so, you know, the resilience is about sustainability. Bottom line, resilience is sustainability. And we want projects that can, you know, handle the, the evolutions and, and, and frankly the tumult that the world could now face. And that also don't exacerbate the tumult the world is going to face because of the fact of the matter is that, you know, if you're talking about, let's say, coronavirus, you know, many people say it's because we're expanding into terror, we're getting these pandemics, but it's not the first pandemic we've had, Ebola and what have you. It's because we're expanding into territories that, you know, are unsustainable. We weren't really thinking things through and slowing things down a bit and seeing, you know, what kind of risk there could be. And, and so we don't want things like this to happen again. And if we don't want things like this to happen again, we've got to start thinking about these risks and how do we actually address these risks. And, and, and the market also has to start thinking, you know, at the end of the day, you know, we're not going to make money if these risks keep happening. And so we've got to try and look after our long-term financial interests by ensuring that we're not, you know, damaging 10 years down the line to serve today. And so, I mean, some investors are not going to be on that bandwagon ever, I think, because some investors are purely short-termist. Uh, but I think most investors are more long-termist. They want to be in the market for, for more than 10 years. And so for them, you know, they need to, I think, think about these things. And that's also leading into what you wrote on page 94, where there's a need to counter some existing biases and preconceptions right. held by investors which prevent them from adopting right. the ESG standards right. in right. their decision making. I would even expand on that and to counter even existing biases in laypersons, regular, right. regular citizens in Canada, the US, or around, everyone around the world mm -hmm. in terms of ESGs. Don't get me mm -hmm. wrong, there's still a lot of people including mm -hmm. us, who mm -hmm. are very concerned about environmental factors, about mm -hmm. the future of 
our international community. But there's still a lot who don't see that, who are just mm -hmm. unable to see that. Mm -hmm. And in many cases, it's not their fault. They mm -hmm. just don't see that. Mm -hmm. They just mm -hmm. live in a specific experience that mm -hmm. they have not been exposed to this kind of need at all, if not maybe a few times in their mm -hmm. lives. And countering these biases is going to take a long time, but we have to do them because it could be too late. And I was reading a survey actually in the UK as well. I, I think certainly before the pandemic, I, I'd say probably even a majority of people still were not on board with this. And I was reading a, surveys in the UK now are saying that people don't actually want to use GDP as the main measurement anymore. They want a sustainability measure. We're talking about like 89% of the population are saying after the pandemic, we've got to move past a pure you know, monetary measurement. Uh, of, of the economy, and that that's that's in the UK, and and uh, and I think that's that's happening across the board, though. And I think, and uh, you know, it's really, I, I think, you know, it, it is absolutely a political question as well. You're absolutely right, and and I think it is it is a question of, you know, I I, I think it's a it's a question of you know how do we create an economy where everyone's prospering? You know, how do we create government regulations which which allow for that? You know, I, I think. Uh, Part of the social factors we have to consider is, is are you employing young people now? It's considering that we have like 30, 40% youth unemployment. What does that mean 10 years down the line? I mean, people have to think about that, right? I mean, it's like, you know, our, I, I mean, our youth unemployment accounts like 30, 40% and, and, and what have you now. And, and uh, you know, at least like a, a, under, 20, under 25 age bracket and what have you. Basically. Yeah, yeah. In Canada, I think it's about 42% for people who are under 25 years of age, which is, which is crazy. I, I still have to check the numbers on that, but right. yeah, I yeah, yeah. think that's where it is mm -hmm. right now. It's right. pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and so we have to think down the line, you know, what is that going to mean when those people are 35, 45, we're in 2030, 2040? What kind of skills do we have in the workforce? What our business is going to be able to get the things they need if people are not getting the training that they need to get right now. And so, you know, that's again, a sustainability question. You know, yes, you don't hire young people initially because it's maybe more costly than beneficial to you. It's true. It can be because you have to train these people more and what have you. So the benefit comes over to hiring young people. And the benefit comes, I mean, young people can certainly be very productive right now, don't get me wrong. But, uh, you know, the benefit primarily comes over time. And so it's those types of social factors which say, yeah, short term, it may not be the most profitable thing to do. It may be easy to get rid of young people or what have you, basically. But what kind of consequences are you setting yourself up for 10, 20 years down the line when you chose to choose to make that type of decision? And, uh, and so the governments, I think, have a role to play in terms of, uh, you know, helping the markets, you know, factor in these types of, of, of issues so that we, you know, can be prospering 10, 20 years down the line. And, and, uh, and so, you know, yeah, I, I think that certainly this pandemic has really, I, I think, created an understanding of the challenges I think that we're going to start facing in the world. And I, I think as well, the idea of, of, of what does long-term prosperity and, and, and how do we get there? Because I, I think that, and so yeah, and I think this is what's all the biases that we talked about in the paper, where, where a lot of this is a short-termist bias, is, is how much money am I gonna make it tomorrow? How much money am I gonna make a year from now? And because I think you have more players in the market now that are sort of like coming in and churning, 
assets basically that they're basically coming in and they want to quickly sell off quickly quick liquidity basically and uh and i think that even even those players in the market i think i think do need to start considering you know what the consequences of doing that are and, and how they remain in the market for, for long-term periods of time to continue making the money that they want to make and and that's fine that they make you know it's to continue making the money they want to make 10 20 years down the line and and and, and are not sort of like uh you, you know damaging that prospect so that no one can make any money 10, 20 years down the line because of what we do today exactly <laughs> these are issues that must be discussed right in here, right here, right now. Well, not right here in the show, because um, this show would only go on for so long. But right now, in, in terms of everything that's happening out there, and it is a long-term discussion to be had as soon as possible. One thing that popped up in my mind as we were talking about this was Andrew Yang, a uh, U.S. presidential mm -hmm. candidate, former U.S. presidential candidate, and his mm -hmm. comments on human-centered capitalism. Now, disclaimer for audience members, this is not a political endorsement, <laughs> right? So we're not trying to be political here. I just wanted to bring up his point because his points are quite interesting and mm -hmm. are quite relevant to what we're talking about in terms of ESG integration and the financial yes, system. Yeah. For those of you who are not familiar with the idea of human-centered capitalism, it is composed of three parts. Firstly, humans are more important than money. Second part, the unit of a human capitalism economy is each person, not each dollar. And number three, markets exist to serve our common goals and values. Now, your research hits all three points in human-centered capitalism. Firstly, it prioritizes the broader community objectives mm -hmm. over conventional private mm -hmm. investor and stakeholder objectives and interests. Stakeholders, right? yeah. Secondly, in prioritizing these broader community objectives, the value of each individual in that community is prioritized, subsequently prioritized, because ESG and sustainability are directly related to improving mm -hmm. their lives, the overall human condition, and mm -hmm they provide a better future for the next generation of humans. And thirdly, ESG is intended to serve human goals and values fundamentally from based on the first two, two reasons. And subsequently, an ESG-focused market will also serve human goals and values in the long term, mm -hmm. as well as the short term. Now to change this, the, the current global financial system towards this will take time. And mm -hmm. it's going to be very different. And it will take a very different form, likely, mm -hmm. than most of what we know currently right now. As law students, lawyers, legal professionals, how can we encourage discussions around ESGs in our local communities? And mm -hmm. how can we encourage other people to, discuss, uh, to consider, rather, ESGs' importance? Yeah, yeah. And so I think that what can lawyers do to sort of like uh, with a sustainable financial system? I think it's a great question. I, I think really lawyers understand I, I, and law students understand the legal incentives that for companies, I think, and, and how the law functions to incentivize certain behavior. And so I think what we really can do is, is really to support, I think, changes in legal frameworks that encourage the kinds of behaviors we want to see in the business world and in the corporate world. 
and that encourage ESG factors and, and what have you, so to speak. And I, I think as well, you know, it's it's certainly as well, you know, I think good legal counsel as well, frankly, to a client is often counsel that realizes that legal issues often come from what are unsustainable practices. And, and so to avoid a legal problem, to avoid negative government attention on an investment or what have you, so to speak, because the government feels like it has to, because certainly our clients don't want to be regulated by the government more than they have to be. But if they take into account these factors on their own and in ways that make sense for them, it won't be imposed on them by the state in a way that may not make sense for them. And so, you know, that's certainly something I think needs to be considered now during the coronavirus pandemic, where we're in a situation whereby the legal framework of companies could change drastically unless companies are showing unless investors are showing that they can take on this challenge themselves. And so, you know, and I, and I think that is certainly, you know, it, it's, uh, and I think as well, like legal issues arise often from unsustainable practices and, uh, you know, or, or from a, a short-term mindset regarding profit. And, uh, and, and so I, I think often just good legal counsel is, is, is allowing clients to sort of see the long-term view of, of how things are going and to allow them to create again sustainable enterprises that make good profits over long periods of time, uh, and that don't you know lead to losses of, of, the, of a, a short-term spike, when, which is then lost entirely. And so, I think that's often what good legal counsel is as well. Exactly, and law, at the end of the day, forces us all to be better people. A good legal system, that is, forces us all to be better people. It's sad that we live in a culture, and this is very similar across Canadian and American cultures, where lawyers and the legal system are viewed as people who want to catch you for every little technicality. Right. Or people get, or people get away <laughs> on mere technical, uh, technicalities. Sometimes that happens because, well, some of the lawyers are abusing technicalities. Mm -hmm. But many times, it's, that's, that, that's not the case. That's mm -hmm. just not the case. I think there also has to be a fundamental change in how not just the layperson, but mm -hmm. also the legal professional views the, the legal system. Mm -hmm. We should view the legal system as a means of regulating ourselves to become better people than we currently are to improve the system, like you said, from the flaws mm -hmm. and to improve it in a way that's more pragmatic, mm -hmm. more practical for, for everyone. And just to make the legal system accessible and to make it more palatable. I, I shouldn't use the word palatable because it kind of sounds like it's, it's, it's not. I mean, it, it is... It, it is I think accessible should be the best word to, to use, to be used to this, to, to describe it because at the end of the day, we live in a democracy. We live in, in a country and, and whether it's Canada or the U S or the UK, where a lot of what we do is determined by the law. A lot of what we do also determines the law and the law reflects who we are. And also at times we also reflect the law. 
So I think this pandemic has really forced us to, to think about this in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Not just in terms of what we were talking about, the financial system, but also mm-hmm. in terms of the legal systems and mm-hmm. how it's being run, mm-hmm. how we proceed with it, how we start proceedings and how we end proceedings and how we, re- we relate with each other as well. And I think this discussion is going to be had starting at the very least starting now. And I hope that more people can, well, at least change, even in the most minor sense, change the way in which we view the legal system in general and just the legal culture as well. Absolutely. You know, I, I think, uh, I, th- I think certainly, you know, this whole idea that lawyers are, are getting people off on technicalities. I've never loved that idea because I, I think that lawyers are there to use the law to the, to the benefit of their clients. That is, that is our current ethical law. Uh, some people believe it should be different. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, I, I don't see a system whereby you don't attempt to use the law to the full benefit of your clients. Uh, the law is what it is, and we live in the world we live in. And I think if we don't like the outcomes that the law has in a democracy, we're able to shape those outcomes. We vote in governments and we vote in parliaments. And we vote in legislators in Congress in the US, whatever, but and that can, you know, change the law. And 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 so, you know, it's very important that we I, I think if, if people don't like the outcomes the law has, they should change the law. Uh, the law is at the end of the day coming to certain decisions that it believes are optimal for societal needs. Uh, not always on the ethical sense, but often in more practical senses. And I think that that's where people start to not like the outcomes of the law, is because they like to believe that the law is only exists in the ethical sense. But in fact, the law only exists on one sense in the ethical sense. There's only one consideration the law has. There's other practical considerations why the law is what it is. The law is a recognizes in many cases of criminal justice and, and corporate law and what have you, that to fully comport ourselves to what we believe ethical would, would create practical considerations that would not be desirable. And so, you know, I, I think that's when people start feeling like you got off on a technicality because it doesn't comport with their ethics, but it does comport perhaps with, but I think they have to consider like what other reasons might there be. You don't have to agree with it. But I think they have to consider what other reasons might there have been for why that outcome came to be. And I think that's something we can understand as law students and as, 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 and as lawyers. You know, even if we don't agree with the outcome, and, 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 and there's really as many outcomes which I don't agree with and which many people don't agree with, we can think that that balance is wrong. But I think we do need to start from an understanding of, of why was this put into place, uh, what was the practical reason why these laws are put into place? And, and then say, well, I think the balance is wrong there. And I think that we would find the balance is wrong in a lot of cases. And I think that you get social values change as well over time. And, and, you know, the law has to stay up to date with those things. But that's certainly, I think, what, what I don't believe in these sorts of technicalities, whatever people get off on technicality. They, they get off for a particular reason which may not comport with our ethics, but which may comport with other considerations that the law has to take into account in order to be, as you said, palatable, in order to be something that can be used 
effectively in society. And so, yeah, and, and, and so I, I think absolutely, you know, this whole discussion and debate, you know, has to, I think, you know, take place now. And I think it is. And I think that, you know, the world will change in, in, in drastic ways, I, I think, you know, coming out of this pandemic. And, uh, and I think that lawyers have a very important role to play in that. And, uh, you know, law is going to be the role of government is, is increasing. I think, you know, we, we are seeing in our generation, certainly, a, a role of government, which was just a bit unthinkable even a year ago, basically. Uh, and so the law is going to increase because the, the law is essentially governance. And, and so there will be more role for law in structuring our relations going forward, I think. So, I think that it's it's an important time to become a lawyer, and so I think yeah. if you're thinking of going to law school, you know, it's it's now more than ever. You know, even with all the uncertainty in place, you know, the law is going to play such a role. I think now in structuring our relations and structuring the kinds of, of outcomes we want to see in the world, that I think it's an important time to be a lawyer. It's such an important time, like you said, to become a lawyer. But it's also a very uncertain time, both as a lawyer and as a law student. Mm -hmm. As we start to wrap up this episode, mm -hmm. what is your advice to current law students in regards to traversing the uncertain legal landscape of a COVID-19 world? What is your advice to them in mm -hmm. terms of the high stakes, high stress environment that they're all in right now? Well, as, as you know, the New York law firms and I'm pretty sure the Canadian law firms too have all started their remote summers this year, the remote summer associate programs, you know, a, a staple and a, a, a long-standing tradition and, and on both sides of the border is that summer associate program, both firms, both large and small. And, you know, it really is, I, I think, you know, a, a time when it's going to be a tough job market out there. Let's, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, you know, the uncertainty, you know, that allowed for such hiring to take place years in advance of when law firms, you know, needed the individuals to come in, required a long-range planning that is challenged by this pandemic, to say the least. But, you know, and, and I think that, so how, how should one comport one's behavior? I, I guess I'm glad I didn't have to find a job during this time in part. I what I think, you know, it, it's... Um, but I, I think if, if I was to give advice, I, I, I'd say, you know, it's quite possible that your OCIs will be virtual and it's going to be that much harder, I think, to make an impression of the uh, if, if you're not in person. Uh, I, I think what people need to see now is is that adaptability and is is that resilience and, and so I, I i think you know certainly the irony is of course is, 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 is well not the irony let's say but you know i, I think it, it certainly an outcome people may not expect it from this is that individuals who've been through challenging life experiences in the past you know, we're going through a collective challenging experience, but saying there's been many individuals who go, go through challenging experiences all the time. And who have gone through that and who have shown that they can get through that and who adapted and who can tell that story of how they adapted through that individual challenging experience and how they think they can apply that to this new world we're going into. I think that that's a really powerful story to tell right now. I, and I think that people do want to hear that right now is, is how 
you know, is people is, is, is they want to know the people they're hiring are adaptable, uh, are flexible, being flexible, I think is another key thing right? with your career path, with the, the idea that you may want to do one thing, but you may need to do another thing. You know, being dead set on doing one particular thing, you know, it's the same thing with being dead set on being a restaurateur at this time or being dead set on being, well, you can be a restaurateur at this time, but being dead set on being a certain kind of restaurateur, like being dead set on being like a formal restaurateur with like fancy interiors and what have you, being dead set on being a nightclub owner at this time. Uh, you know, it may just not work, you know, and, 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 and it may just be, Maybe it's nothing wrong that you like that, but it may just not be possible now. And, you know, it's, uh, and so being flexible and sort of saying that, you know, to some extent, yes, you're going to shape the ride a bit, but you're also along for the ride with the rest of society for a bit and recognizing and having that humility, I think, and sort of recognizing that you are along for this ride with everyone else in the world, really. Uh, and that you're going to adapt as you need to adapt in order for that to happen. I, I think interviewers want to hear that, and then they want people who are, you know, adaptable and who have been able to overcome challenges, because who knows what challenges we'll be facing in the companies. And, um, and yeah, and I, th I think that, you know, those students will, will continue to have success. Uh, the other thing is, you know, in some cases, you know, people are going to have to, youth unemployment is very high and, and you know, we're not necessarily immune to that. And, uh, and so being not despairing if things are not going as you planned, because even with the advice I, I, I give you, like, there's going to be people who it's not going to go as a planned, even if they're doing everything right, because it's just that hard a time. But, you know, it's, being patient, I, I think really having plan A, plan B, plan C, plan D, but really just doing something that's productive is important, particularly if you, for whatever reason, God forbid, you know, you don't get an auditing position during this time, which is possible. If you don't get some position this time, which is possible, then, you know, at the very least, like think about what other productive things you can do to really, uh, uh, improve yourself. I, I think people want to see that you're not just, you know, sitting around and, and despairing over the situation, but you are doing so, let's say, learning a language, uh, you know, writing, you know, for leisure even. But really taking on, I, I think, if I was in the employment seat, I would want to see people taking on a certain type of project during the summer and really seeing that through. And so like saying, look, even if I'm not, employed this particular summer or this particular year, I'm still pursuing personal objectives and I'm still seeing things through, I'm still staying productive. And I think those people will be well positioned to once this sort of blows over a bit to be able to re-enter the job market in successful way. And that's something that I'm taking to heart as well right now. I mean, uh, this summer for me, mm -hmm. I've been doing two things. One thing is, well, running this podcast and mm -hmm. hosting episodes. Right. And the second thing I've been doing is, well, I used to be a classical, well, I still am a classical pianist, mm -hmm. uh, but I was much more active back, uh, back in my high school days, actually, right. performing a lot more. And, but now what mm -hmm. I'm doing is, you know, I'm recording pieces, mm -hmm. recording full-on classical music repertoire Excellent. and sharing it with, uh, with, with my local community. 
and just discussing it even Mm because, you know, classical music isn't very much discussed on a very colloquial vernacular level. Mm-hmm. So want to break that stereotype of right. lavishness and just go and just, right. just uh, you know, just, just talk about it on, on a, on a vernacular level and on a regular right. common person mm-hmm. level. So mm-hmm. that's what I've been that's doing exactly a lot. I'm about. Yeah. As you know, like really, this is a time to rediscover hobbies, rediscover passions that you've had. I know so many people actually rediscovered. I mean, I'm, I'm leisure reading far more than I did during law school or, or during when I was in the office. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, really have been able to really pick that up again. And, and you know, so my general knowledge is, 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 is once again, very much improving. And so I, I've really enjoyed that time. And I really appreciate that time. So there's absolutely, you know, it's, it's not a, it's a, it's a challenging time, but there's absolutely silver lines to be had. And I think that's the important thing as well is staying optimistic, staying positive, you know, not naively optimistic, not naively positive, but staying optimistic, staying positive, finding the silver linings of this time and really, you know, pursuing those, I, I think it is really important right now. And those are certainly words that we should all remember by. And well, for most of us, for, for all of us, I should say, we look to you for inspiration, Roy. Uh, thank you so much for coming on on the show and to share your experiences on how you went from before law school to during law school at Harvard, to now mm-hmm. working in, in, at Debevoise and Plimpton. And thank you also to our listeners and viewers for tuning in to this edition of The Law School Show. You can catch more of Royce and Gupta at the Debevoise Plimpton webpage as well on his profile. I'll be linking that in the description as well. If you also want to read his chapter as he co-authored with a few other Carlton colleagues in the book, you can also find that chapter as I will link that in the description to the book published in 2018, Designing a Sustainable Financial System, Development Goals, and and Socio-Ecological Responsibility. Other than that, once again, thank you so much, Roy, for coming on the show once again. Tune in next time to our audience. Tune in next time on the Law School Show as we have more exciting episodes to keep you updated on important information and staying competitive and staying up to date with the current law news and legal updates. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. Thank you. You've just been listening to The Law School Show. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and now on Spotify, or on our website at thelawschoolshow.com. If you liked what you heard, like us again on Facebook, or follow us on Twitter for the latest updates. Human stories, new legal topics, and career-advancing advice right to your earbuds. Catch it all here, next time on The Law School Show.